If you have your copy of the scriptures, let me encourage you to turn to Matthew chapter 16. Matthew 16, 24 through 28 will be our focus passage this morning. If you don't have a copy of the scriptures, grab one of those few Bibles there in front of you and turn to page 1045, page 1045. If you have children ages four through the fourth grade and you would like for them to attend children's church, they can be dismissed now. We have workers waiting out in the foyer ready to receive them and they will, they will teach them well during this time. They are welcome to stay in here. Before, before getting to the text and, and sermon, let, let me just pause and say thank you. Um, we put an announcement in the bulletin, a, a thank you note in the bulletin, but this is the first opportunity I've, I've had really to stand before you in this way and say thank you to all of you for the overwhelming kindness, generosity, love by means tangible in words and, and otherwise that you showed to me, to Val, to our family a number of weeks ago in the, the 10th anniversary celebration. Thank you. Thank you for, for loving me and my family well. I appreciate it. choices. We all make them. We all make many of them every day. In fact, as, as we grow, we make more and more choices. We have to make more and more choices, right? As we grow up, like it or not, we've got, we've got to make choices. Researchers at Cornell University have estimated that as adults, we make 227 decisions a day about food. It's, all, it's not great for the, for the pastor to make an illustration about food, right? In the, the morning service. 227 decisions a day, conscious, unconscious about food. Every day they estimate 35,000 choices that we make on, on average. Some people more, some people, some people less. Jay Adams, a pastor, counselor, theologian, has made an observation with respect to, to choices. He said, you know, it's really a, a kindness of God that he has built in to the way that we work, the development of habits, because so many choices that we make, we make them without even thinking about them. They become habits to us. Because if we had to work our way through methodically all of those 35,000 choices every day, we might not get our teeth brushed for the first time. Notice I said for the first time before five o'clock every evening. You know, we, which foot do I get out of the bed first, right? When I'm putting on my sides, are you left? Do I, no, we have habits built in so that many of these choices are habitual. And that's God's kindness to us in, in hardwiring us in, in that way. 
But thinking about all of those choices and all of the habits, choices that we make consciously and unconsciously, those choices that we make are, by and large, driven by our values, our commitments, what we want. We, whether we think about it or not, we choose in the end, what we want. Our passage this morning has the Lord Jesus explaining to us discipleship in a way that reaches down to the heart of those values and commitments. Now, let's see what Jesus has to say to us about discipleship. As I mentioned, our focus passage is going to be verses 24 through 28, and especially verse 24. But I want to begin reading in verse 13. It's helpful to see how Matthew presents this statement of Jesus, because he does so in, in a context that is significant to understanding Jesus' call to discipleship and its demands. So begin following along as I read, starting in chapter 16, verse 13. Now, when Jesus came into the district of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, who do people say that the Son of Man is? And they said, some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, and others Jeremiah or one of the prophets. He said to them, but who do you say that I am? Simon Peter replied, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. Jesus answered him, Blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. And I tell you, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven, and whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven. Whatever you lose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Then he strictly charged the disciples to tell no one that he was the Christ. From that time... Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and on the third day be raised. Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him saying, far be it from you, Lord, this shall never happen to you. But Jesus turned and said to Peter, get behind me, Satan, you are a hindrance to me for you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. Then Jesus told his disciples, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. Forever would love who, for whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. For what will it profit a man if he gains the whole world and forfeits his life? Or what shall a man give in return for his life? For the Son of Man is going to come with his angels in the glory of his Father, and then he will repay each person according to what he has done. Truly I say to you, there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the Son of Man coming in his kingdom. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, as we pause for a moment and consider these words inspired by your Holy Spirit, penned by the Apostle Matthew, preserved by your providence for us to read today. Father, we pray that you would give us eyes to see, give us hearts to treasure, give us ears to hear what it is that you have for us in these specific words today. 
Father, help us to listen to these words, to your spirit attentively. Father, convict us where we need to be convicted. Encourage us where we need encouragement. Father, we pray that that you would strengthen us, that you would renew us, that you would do your work in our midst through these words of yours for us today. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. So I want us, as we think about what Jesus says here, I want us to consider discipleship's demands simply by asking and answering a series of questions that kind of flow out of what Jesus says here. The first question is, this is the very beginning, what is discipleship? What is discipleship? Uh, We use that word in a variety of ways. The actual word itself is not found in our English translations. It comes from disciple and make disciples, right? But what do we mean by discipleship? Sometimes we use the words to describe someone's one-on-one investment in the life of another. So Larry's discipleship of Bob, right? We might use the word discipleship to in reference to a course or a process, a discipleship study or a discipleship plan intended to grow someone in the Christian faith. And these are not wrong ways to use the word discipleship. They're helpful ways. But if we don't pause and reflect on the meaning of discipleship as it's presented to us in the scriptures and and leave it to how we use the words in these ways, we might put an emphasis in in the wrong place. For example, thinking about Larry's discipleship of, of Bob, if we leave it there, we might think one of two things is the key to discipleship, and that is relationship one believer to another. And certainly that is important. We might think that discipleship primarily is the transfer of information or wisdom, insight from a mature believer to a less mature believer. And certainly there is a place for that and that is a part of discipleship. If we think about a discipleship plan or a discipleship course, we might tend to think of discipleship as a process by which we walk through. And certainly there is a a process, indeed a lifelong process, that is the life of discipleship. But in its essence, the way the Bible speaks of being a disciple and specifically being a disciple of Jesus, it simply means to follow Jesus to follow him. And that's what he says here. If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross and follow me. That verb follow for Matthew is important throughout his gospel to describe and identify what it is to be a disciple. Discipleship is following Jesus. When Jesus calls his first disciples in in chapter 4, and then when he calls Matthew in chapter 9, what does he say? He, He calls to them and he says, follow me. So in short, what is discipleship? It is simply following Jesus. 
not following me, not following Pastor Steve, not following some other mature believer or some other some speaker or author. Discipleship is following one person. Christian discipleship is following one person and one person alone, and that is the Lord Jesus Christ. Second question then, if that is discipleship, how does it begin? How does discipleship begin? If we limited ourselves to verse 24, we might be tempted to think that discipleship begins with us. Discipleship begins with our decision to follow Jesus. But for Matthew, and indeed for the scriptures, discipleship does not begin with us. Discipleship begins with the one whom we will follow. Discipleship begins with Jesus, who he is and what he has done. Go back, I just referenced it, but turn back to Matthew chapter 4. Matthew chapter 4, verse 18. While walking by the Sea of Galilee, he saw two brothers. Again, this is chapter 4, verse 18. Simon, who is called Peter, and Andrew, his brother, casting a net into the sea, for they were fishermen. And he said to them, follow me, and I will make you fishers of men. Immediately they left their nets and followed him. Going on from there, he saw two other brothers, James, the son of Zebedee, and John, his brother, in the boat with, Ze with Zebedee, their father, mending their nets. And he called them immediately. They left the boat and their father and did what? Followed him. Where did the discipleship of these disciples begin? It began by the Lord Jesus calling out to them, follow me. But go back now to, to Matthew 16. In addition to Jesus's call, there is also what Jesus himself does. This statement by Jesus to deny ourselves, take up our cross, follow him, is preceded by this exchange by, with Jesus and Peter, prompted by Jesus' prediction of his impending death. Jesus is on his way to Jerusalem. Why? He's on his way to Jerusalem to give himself for sinners like us to die in our place so that he might purchase our forgiveness. And the, and the disciples, Peter, chief among them, can't understand why it is that Jesus, this one who has just been identified as the Christ, the son of the living God, why he would die. They can't make heads or tails of it, but he is going there for a purpose. And it is only by that purpose, it is only by his giving of himself that we can become followers of his. Discipleship, where does it begin? It begins with the call and the work of Christ first and foremost. So this morning, if you're here this morning, And you have never responded to Christ's call and work for sinners. This is where 
discipleship must begin for you. Confessing to the Lord that you are a sinner, unable to save yourself, and that you need and can only claim what Christ has done by giving himself, and not just giving himself in death, but raising to new life on the third day to accomplish forgiveness. That is where following Christ must begin. It doesn't begin with a resolve, okay, I'm going to do what Jesus wants me to do. It begins with Nothing in my hand I bring, simply only to thy cross I cling. So this morning, right there where you are, you can, by faith, say no to sin, say yes to Jesus. Commit yourself to him and begin to live as his disciple. But that's what discipleship is, and that's where it begins. Why, why is it necessary? Why is following Jesus necessary? Well, Jesus gives us first and foremost why it's necessary in verses 25 and 27. For, he gives an explanation. This is is why you must follow me, Jesus says. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life, life for my sake will find it. For what will it profit a man if he gains the whole world and forfeits his soul? Or what shall a man give in return for his life? For the Son of Man is going to come with his angels in the glory of his Father. Then he will repay each person according to what he has done. Verses 25, 26, and 27 all begin with this for. All right, he's giving, Jesus giving the reason why It is necessary to follow him. D.A. Carson commenting on these words of Jesus observes, the logic is relentless. Why is following Jesus necessary? Because eternity is at stake. Eternity is at stake. What will it profit a man to gain everything in this life, to not heed Jesus' call, to repent and follow him, what will it gain that person to amass everything they can and yet forfeit their soul for eternity? What can you give in return for your life? Why is following Jesus necessary? Because only by following him do we enter into the joy of his eternal pleasure but discipleship to Jesus is also necessary because all of us whether consciously or unconsciously all of us will and do follow someone, some idea, someone's, some set of ideas. The question is not whether or not we will follow someone or some idea. The question is, who will we follow? What set of ideas we will follow? And Jesus says, there is only true life, there is only everlasting joy in 
following him. The question isn't whether or not you will follow someone. The question is, who will you follow? Jesus says it is necessary that you follow him. Related. Why is discipleship to Jesus necessary? Discipleship to Jesus is necessary because there is no experience There is no true experience of Jesus' forgiveness and acceptance apart from discipleship. Turn to the very end of Matthew's gospel, Matthew chapter 28. Matthew 28, Jesus is preparing to send out his disciples. He's preparing to depart very well-known verses beginning in verse 16. Now the 11 disciples went to Galilee, Matthew 28, 16, to the mountain to which Jesus had directed them. When they saw him, they worshiped him, but some doubted. Jesus came and said to them, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. As Jesus sends out his disciples, what does he tell them to do? He does not tell them, go make converts. He does not tell them, go find those who will pray a prayer. What does he do? He tells them, go and make disciples, not disciples of yourselves, make disciples of me. The implication is there is no coming under the reign of King Jesus. There is no experiencing his acceptance and his forgiveness apart from following him following Jesus. Discipleship to Jesus is absolutely necessary. Well, then the next question comes, why why is discipleship to Jesus preferable? Why is it preferable? Well, for all the reasons we just listed, it's preferable, right? One, because eternity is at stake. Following Jesus is preferred over following anyone else, anything else, because eternity is at stake. But more than that, or in, in addition to that, if we need more convincing, why is it better preferred to follow Jesus? Because of who Jesus is. Because he is the sinless son of God. Because he is the promised Messiah. Because he is the one who, who has given himself for sinners. Because of his identity and his work. Because there is no one in heaven or in earth who compares to him. He is the one to follow. It is preferable to follow him because everything else, everyone else is subject to his authority. Follow King Jesus. But not just because of his identity and his and his work, but also because of his character. Because of what he's like. Turn to chapter 9. Matthew chapter 9.
Why is it preferable to follow Jesus? Listen to what Jesus is like. Jesus went throughout all the cities and villages, teaching in their synagogues, proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom, healing every disease and every affliction. When he saw the crowds, he had compassion for them because they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. Jesus is no harsh taskmaster. Jesus is no remote authoritarian. Jesus is the one who has been given all authority in heaven and on earth. Don't misunderstand. But in addition to being the high and holy one, he is also the incomparably compassionate one. Follow Jesus because of his compassion, because of his love, because of his character. Lastly, why is discipleship to Jesus to be preferred? Flip now to chapter 12. Matthew chapter 12. Discipleship to Jesus is to be preferred because when we follow Jesus, The relationship is not merely student-teacher. It is that. We are are students of Jesus. The relationship is not merely servant-master. It is that. We are servants of Master Jesus. But in addition to that, discipleship to Jesus is being the family of Jesus. While he was still speaking to the people, chapter 12, verse 46, behold, his mother and his brothers stood outside asking to speak to him. But he replied to the man who told him, who is my mother and who are my brothers? Stretching out his hand toward whom? Toward his disciples, toward his followers. He said, here are my mother and my brothers. Whoever does the will of my father in heaven is my brother and sister and mother. The invitation to follow Jesus is an invitation to come into his family, to come into the family of the living God. Jesus welcomes us as brothers and sisters if we follow him. Well, then, if this is what discipleship is and why discipleship to Jesus is to be preferred, what then are the demands? What are the demands that Jesus lays on his disciples? There are three of them in verse 24 of chapter 16. Then Jesus told his disciples, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. There they are, three commands... They're not translated as commands here, but in the original, they are, they are commands. Deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. So what are these demands? What does Jesus mean by this denial of self, taking up the cross, following him? Oh, well, first, when Jesus calls his disciples to deny themselves, in effect, he is, he is telling us who we are, our makeup of desires, of values, of commitments. 
apart from being conformed to Christ, who we are in and of ourselves apart from Christ, those values, those desires, those commitments will not, re- will not lead us reliably. They will not lead us in the way of faithfulness. They will not lead us in the way of righteousness. They will lead us astray because... In Adam, we all sinned because we are born sinners. And so the declaration of our age to follow your heart is woefully deficient. Now, with this, We're not saying, Jesus is not saying, and we as followers of Christ do not believe that we should be people who find no pleasure in anything and we should deny ourselves of every pleasure imaginable. The Apostle Paul makes this clear, right? He says that God has given to us all things to enjoy richly. This is not a denial of pleasure. It is merely a statement, not merely, it is a statement that says that those pleasures those desires, those commitments formed within our hearts will never reliably lead us in the way of faithfulness. We must deny those inclinations where they are not conformed to Christ's expressed desires for his people. That is, Jesus is saying that he has not come merely to validate our lust for power, for prestige, for material wealth in this life. He's not come just to validate who we are in and of ourselves. By nature, by our nature, we as sinful human beings tend to be, excuse me, tend to be what the church father Augustine and the reformer Martin Luther described as curved in on ourselves. That is, our desires, our commitments left to ourselves are turned inward. We are chiefly concerned about what's good for us, what's good for those that we love the most. We want to celebrate ourselves. We want to celebrate them. We're curved in upon ourselves. Instead, Jesus calls his followers to deny that impulse to an inward curvature and instead to be curved outward, to be curved towards others, to be curved first towards love of God, and the second is like it, to be curved towards love of neighbor. Not inward focused, but outward focused. Deny ourselves, but then Jesus says, take up his cross. In some ways, this is just a Another way of saying the same thing, but, but there's a little bit of a different flavor to taking up the cross. We have not been well served 
by a cliche that we often throw around. And that is we, we come upon some hardship or difficulty, maybe it's a, just an irritating coworker or something that we find a little bit, a little or a lot of bit challenging in life, perhaps an, an illness that just won't go away. We have not been well served by the cliche that we tend to toss around in describing that hardship or nuisance as a what? A cross to bear. In terms of what Jesus is saying here, those aren't crosses to bear. They are hardships. They're challenges. I'm not minimizing those. But to call those crosses to bear is to miss what Jesus is calling his disciples to. Because in verses 21 through 23, what do we read about? What, what did we read about? Jesus is telling his disciples that he is about to be betrayed into the hands of men and he will be put to death. He doesn't say, or Matthew here doesn't report that he says he will be crucified. But if you move over into into chapter 19, you will see that there Jesus does say, or excuse me, chapter, chapter 20, Jesus does say that he will be crucified. And the reader of Matthew's gospel, as soon as they read that, they, you, we know where the story is going. Jesus is calling his disciples to walk the very road that as he tells them, he is now walking, and that is to their death. The cross was the means by which the Romans executed criminals. The cross wasn't some mere aggravation. It was the death penalty. And so what is Jesus calling his disciples to? He is calling his disciples to a death to self. He is calling his disciples to a life of sacrifice because as Jesus goes to his death, he is giving himself in sacrifice. It is the life of death, the, the life of taking up the cross is a life of submission to the Father's will as revealed in Scripture, regardless of how inconvenient, regardless of how seemingly difficult, taking up the cross means submitting to the Father's will. As Jesus prayed in Gethsemane, not my will, but yours be done. This is taking up our cross, dying to ourselves, submitting to the Father's will. David Platt captures the essence and the implications for daily life. He says, you die to yourself by putting aside self-righteousness, self-indulgence, and everything that belongs to you. Your desires, your ambitions, your thoughts, your dreams, your possessions. Let me read that one more time. You die to yourself by putting aside self-righteousness, self-indulgence, and everything that belongs to you. Your desires, your ambitions, your thoughts, your dreams, 
your possessions. And I would say then, the third demand in being a disciple of Jesus, deny yourself, take up your cross, and follow Jesus so that when we follow him, our heart's cry is that God's desires would become our desires, that God's ambitions would become our ambitions, that we would think God's thoughts after him, that his dreams would become our dreams. If we could think of God as, as having dreams, he knows what is going to happen, right? But the point is our dreams should be conformed to his desires, to his intentions for us. Well then, what does, what does it look like? What do discipleship's demands look like in our daily lives? What do discipleship's demands look like in our daily lives? Well, it begins where we have already said it begins. Following Jesus begins with a response of faith to him. Not just general faith, not just faith in faith, trust in who Jesus is and what he has done. This denying of self, this taking up of our cross, this following Jesus, this should influence the big decisions of our lives. We should take before the Lord what we're going to give our lives to if you're in the position of thinking about future career. Think about who your spouse might be. These big decisions, we should take these before the Lord and seek to honor him in the decisions that we make. But it's, we, we don't live as disciples of Christ only in the big decisions of life. Maybe you're in the place and you feel like, I've made all those big decisions. There, there really are no more big decisions for me to make. That does not mean that following Jesus is over. It is in the 10,000, it is in the 35,000 big and little choices that we make each and every day where discipleship to Jesus is lived out. That is, our priorities, our priorities should be aligned with God's priorities for his people. Our desire for ourselves should not be the pursuit of power, prestige, or possessions. We do this in ways big and small. But instead, our priorities should be those of love, compassion, humility. This is the way of the crucified and risen, the serving Messiah. But notice... What do these demands look like? Go back once more to Matthew chapter 28. Verse 18. Jesus came, said to them, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations. He tells them to go. 
He tells them to make disciples, and then he tells them in broad strokes how disciples are made. Two ways. Baptizing them. That is, they come into, they identify with the the people of God. Repentance, and then declaring their allegiance to Christ in believers' baptism. But then after baptism, the discipleship continues teaching them to observe all that I commanded. How do we live out following Jesus? We live out following Jesus by submitting ourselves to everything that he taught. But let's not be mistaken. We're not not red-letter Christians. Right? We don't just think that the words in red in our Bibles are the ones that are important. Right? It's all important because it's all inspired by the Spirit of Jesus. The Holy Spirit is identified as the Spirit of Jesus. All of the Scriptures are Jesus' words. But we would do well to pay careful attention to the words that Jesus has commanded. What has He commanded? He has commanded that we are to deny ourselves, take up our crosses, follow Him. He has called us to the Scripture reading that we read earlier, a life of blessedness under the Father's reign that is pursued by not harboring anger and bitterness, but in that little or big conflict with a family member, pursuing peace, being a peacemaker, pursuing forgiveness. Instead of fear over what others think, fight to love them and trust the Lord. Instead of being curved inward and serving ourselves, living a life that is curved outward for ways to love, serve, and sacrifice for others. The question for us is, where is one place? Where is one place this morning that you need to grow? Where is one place where you need to, Christ is calling you to deny yourself, to lay aside something that you are clinging to, some expectation, some demand? Where is it that Christ is calling you to live a life that reflects His compassion, His character, His commitment? How is it this morning that the demands of discipleship meet you? Do not dismiss Christ's call. Eternity is at stake. Take up your cross, deny yourself, and follow Him. Jim Elliott, well-known name to many of you, Jim Elliot knew this. Jim Elliot lived this. Jim Elliot died this. Uh, for those of you who don't know, 
January 8th, 1956. Jim Elliott, Pete Fleming, Ed McCulley, Nate Saint, Roger Uterane were martyred in Ecuador, killed by the Warani Indians, then known as the Alca Indians. Many of the Warani later came to know the, the Lord. They were taking the gospel of God's saving reign in Christ to a people who had never heard it. And it cost them their lives. A little over six years before his death, Eliot penned in his personal journal what seems to be his most well-known, most quoted line. He is no fool who gives what he cannot keep to gain that which he cannot lose. He is no fool who gives what he cannot keep to gain that which he cannot lose. The Lord Jesus put it this way. Whoever would save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. For what will it profit a man if he gains the whole world and forfeits his life? Or what shall a man give in return for his life? For the Son of Man is going to come with his angels in the glory of his Father, and then he will repay each person according to what he has done. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for the gift of Christ's life in our place. Father, thank you for the gift of Christ's resurrection from the dead so that we can enjoy new life in him, new desires, new commitments, new values, new thoughts. Father, today as we continue to sing, we sing once again as we prepare to leave, as we go from this place. Father, help us to honestly ask before you, what is it, where is it that I need to deny myself? How does that change my expectations for others? How does that change my expectations in the life of my church? How does that change my participation in the congregational life of RBC? How does commitment to Christ and submitting to Him, not to the exaltation of my name, change how I go about my schoolwork, how I go about my work during the week, how I live in relationship to family and friends. Father, help us to grow in resisting our tendency to curve inward on ourselves. And help us to grow, Father, in curving outwards in lives of love and sacrifice for your glory so that others might see our good works and give glory to you and also for the good of others. In Jesus' name we pray.